miss the show no worries on point on this podcast are we standing with ukraine or standing around wasting time trying to help a country that's facing the worst humanitarian crisis of our time 4.1 million have now left the country with nowhere to go You'll recall the Trudeau government promised to open the door to unlimited numbers of Ukrainians. Well, 60,000 have applied, and so far, 3,400 have come to this country. It's not that Canadians aren't stepping up. It's that this government is good at the talk, just not the walk. Same can be said with the Afghan interpreters, who were again promised safety in this country. And of the 40,000 the Trudeau government promised to resettle here, only 10,000 have come in. So we're going to be talking to one of the Afghan interpreters who is now staging a hunger strike in Ottawa, trying to raise attention and pressure on this issue. He says his community and many of the people still stranded in Afghanistan feel utterly betrayed and lied to by this government. As the price of the pump goes up another 12 cents on April Fool's Day, yeah, it's no joke, that is, of course, thanks to the carbon taxes. We now learn that the Trudeau government is going to be tabling legislation to make carbon taxes a permanent thing that no other government can remove or even lower. This, of course, coming at a time when they've tabled this climate plan that forces us to pay for something that is based on absolute fantasy because the emission cuts they're demanding just cannot be done. And inflation, it's hitting the one store where costs are supposed to stay low, the dollar store announcing it's hiking costs. So at what point is a discount store that built its brand on dollar items is no longer living up to its name? Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson. It's hard to describe um, in, in an interview what four million people totally traumatized by war looks like or feels like and what it means for their future when six weeks ago they were living a completely normal life and now they're completely uprooted. It is the worst humanitarian crisis of our time and Canada is dragging its feet to help. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, March 31st, 34th, yeah, whatever, 31st we'll call it, end of the month as we uh, usher in another new month and hopefully uh, the spring weather will stay with it. So it is great, you know, that we say we stand with Ukraine and I know a lot of Canadians do, a lot of Canadians do, but these days, you know, it looks more and more like we're standing around watching when what we really need to do is action now. And it's clear that Canada can't do much more than what we have when it comes to supplying lethal weapons to Ukraine, albeit I really wish we would just buy the weapons they need and get it done. But we can help in other ways, and that is by taking in as many Ukrainian refugees as quickly as we can, because the numbers now are staggering. Today it's 4.1 million, and another 7 million have been completely displaced within the country, Many of them are you know, facing starvation, uh, death, because they have nowhere to hide. There's no clean drinking water. They're running out of food. So this is very much one of the worst humanitarian crises of our time. And most of the people fleeing are women, the elderly, and children, with children said to be the highest number of those who are being affected by, you know, this hell and you'll recall, uh, Trudeau went to Poland himself to see the situation. There he was meeting with refugees, and he you know, declared weeks ago that there would be no limit on Ukrainians who can apply to come into this country. And since 
that announcement, 60,000 Ukrainians have signed up to come here. But so far, when you look at the numbers, we've only brought in a paltry 3,400 Ukrainians. And we have the largest Ukrainian population in the world outside of the country. 1.4 million Ukrainians live here in Canada. And they, along with thousands of Canadians, have stepped forward to offer their homes, uh, offer support. And so you got to wonder, what is the holdup? Where's the urgency? And more than 500 Ukrainian-based organizations and churches are now pressuring the Trudeau government to lay out some kind of framework, some kind of direction, so that they can settle refugees here, you know, link them to things like uh, homes, health care, supports, and, of course, the jobs that we said we'd offer them. And these groups aren't hearing anything. And that's because it doesn't really sound like there's a system in place. It's not because Canadians don't want to help. It's that this government seems totally unprepared to actually act on the platitude that, you know, it declares. And I was reading today reports that as many as 370,000 refugees who made it out of the country to safety have now gone back into Ukraine because they've either run out of money or they can't find a place to go or afford the accommodations in neighboring countries that are running out of space. I mean, imagine being so desperate that you return to the hell you just escaped from because countries like Canada are mired in the predictable bureaucracy. I mean, this is not the first time we have been called on to help. And it's also not the first time that this government has dealt with an unprecedented refugee crisis. I mean, you'd think that they'd learn something from the many mistakes of the disaster still unfolding in Afghanistan. And after failing to do anything for years to get Afghans out, you know, their inaction to date remains just a gong show. They promised to get 40,000 Afghans out of that country, and so far they've only brought 10,000 into this country since last September. It's not enough to spew the words. Yes, it sounds good. It's the follow-through, which is a disgrace. And so, no, we are not standing with Ukraine, we are really standing around talking about, you know, what we need to do when we should have already been doing it. And so later in the show, we're going to be speaking to one of the many, many organizations that are pressuring this government to get moving and what needs to happen. We will also speak with an Afghan interpreter who is in this country now, but who has family still stuck in Afghanistan they're being hunted by the Taliban. He feels lied and betrayed. And he's got a message for the government. He is taking part in um, a hunger strike on Parliament Hill. And uh, they want action. We made one of the most substantial commitments globally to say we're going to have 40,000 come here. We expect we're still on track to hit that goal next year of at least 40,000. But the reality is there's going to be some people uh, amongst the million communications that the departments receive that may not end up living in Canada one day. But we want to do whatever we can to make one of the most significant contributions to this effort because we believe we have a moral obligation to those who helped Canada 
And we also want to do our part on the world stage as part of the humanitarian effort. Well, that is Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship of Canada, Sean Fraser, talking earlier today. You know, while all eyes have been on the refugee crisis in Ukraine, there's still a crisis unfolding across Afghanistan where we've had thousands of Afghan interpreters and their families who are still waiting for help that the Trudeau government promised months ago. These are people who risked their lives for our country. They served our soldiers on the front lines. And they're being hunted by the Taliban, which now controls the country. And, you know, the Trudeau government and, and the Harper government had years to get these people to this country. And, of course, the Trudeau government promised to get 40,000 here once the country fell to the Taliban. And so far since September, only 10,000 Afghans have arrived here in Canada. So while this government's very quick to get out and enjoy the photo ops, these people are running for their lives Many have been killed waiting for their paperwork to be processed, and these people feel utterly betrayed and lied to. One of them is my next guest. His name is not Zahed, but it is the name that we will be using because he is in danger. But he's a former interpreter who is now in Canada, but he has family on the run in Afghanistan, and he's now taking part in a hunger strike on Parliament Hill. Because Zahed, and I appreciate you joining us, um, you feel very much betrayed by this government. Do you, do you believe they misled you? Uh, definitely and for sure. Uh, there are so many promises that were made uh, to us by, by the immigration and IRCC, and they have seen nothing so far, still waiting on their hard work that they apparently trying to tell us that they do, but they, they don't do that. What have they done? I mean, there was an issue, of course, with paperwork. They, they put in a system that was so cumbersome for people in Afghanistan where they couldn't get the paperwork because, of course, they don't have access to things like the, the Internet uh, because they, they risk dangers of the Taliban killing them. I mean, has any of that become easier? Uh, not, not so much. Uh, the first hunger strike that we had that was in uh, September last year and it took them two months uh, to set up uh, a process uh, uh, for us. And then it was re- that process was started on December 9th. And basically when we had those arrangements, and re- when we had the meetings, uh, we still have meetings. We had like the 25th meeting last week. Uh, it was like very simple. The, pro- the only thing, the only paperwork that we had to provide was identification card or a proof of relation that with our family. But now it, ha- it is becoming more demanding. Uh, they're asking us for passports. They're asking us for marriage certificates. They're asking us for pl- police, police clearance, which is all related to the Taliban government. So on one hand, they tell us, uh, uh, at the beginning, they told us that you do not need all those documents because going to Taliban's office is definitely like clearly telling them who I am and why I need those documents. But now they're forwarding more, uh, re- uh, requesting emails, uh, requesting all those documents. And we are about 300 families here living in Canada. And about 35% of those families are assigned G numbers. But G numbers do not save our families, and our request to the government is to expedite the process and uh, assign G numbers to those who haven't been assigned yet and work 
on the evacuation for those who have been assigned the G numbers and yeah. uh, case numbers. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues, obviously, is security. I mean, they don't want people coming into the country that shouldn't be here, okay. But, you know, they had years to act, and they could have avoided a lot of, well, most of this, uh, the issues that, that, you know, you and your family and others face today. In your situation, you managed to get here to the country, but you you still have family very much, um, you know, on the run in Afghanistan. Can you tell us a bit about your situation? What is facing uh, the people who are now stuck in that country? Well, I have four brothers left in Afghanistan. Two are missing. Uh, uh, they have been, like, they, they went missing at the beginning when the Taliban uh, took over the country. One finally made it to Turkey by, by smuggling himself, uh, facing the death on the way, and he's still hiding from the police in Turkey. And the other one is still missing, so we have no news of him. And uh, the, the rest of the family and my brothers, Missing brothers, wives, wives and kids, uh, they're all on the run from one province to another, from one house to another. And it's been weeks that I haven't talked to them, so I have no idea what they are going through right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm sure they're in a very difficult situation. Well, I mean, the, the amount of stress that places on you, no matter, you know, you can only imagine the fear that they are, are living in. Um, you know, where do they go? Are, are safe houses even um, uh, an option at this point? I mean, are those still available or have the Taliban rooted out all those safe houses? Uh, they were rooted out like way long ago and the government stopped paying for those houses. We do have some safe houses in Pakistan or, you know, like where it's... Uh, all those people who are about to come to Canada, they are waiting there, but uh, they're not supported. So on uh, at the beginning of uh, this process, when it was open for us, uh, we were told that anyone who has passport, he can, they can go to, if they can manage to go to Pakistan, uh, you know, we can provide for their accom- accommodations and they will be on their way to Canada. So some of our friends who whose family, they, uh, families had passports from way long ago. They bought the visas for very high uh, price, uh, Pakistani visa. They moved to Pakistan, but then IRCC told us, no, you, we cannot uh, pay for any expenses. They have to live there by their own expenses. So the interpreters here in Canada, they start, started sending money to their families in Pakistan but now they're running, uh, they're uh, running out of money, and their visas are expiring. So either they will be jailed in Pakistan because they do not have a visa, and it's super expensive to renew their visas, or they have mm-hmm. to go back to Afghanistan, where that their debt is for sure. So you and a number of others are going to be holding these hunger strikes uh, in Ottawa. Have you heard anything from the government? And what is the message that you are trying to get out? Uh, the message is simple and clear that we want to have our families evacuated from Afghanistan before they are killed. Because in this very moment, I have few of my friends here that recently, like two days ago, three days ago, their brothers went missing. And, and we want the government to get them out of the country as soon as possible. And then they can do all their paperwork or whatever is needed. Because we also want a safer 
past, you know, like we want them to come here, but in safer way. Like we do not want anyone uh, to, uh, you know, to cause a threat to our country, Canada here. Mm-hmm. So we just want the government to provide the process, and we haven't heard anything back, but we will keep uh, going as long as we can. Has your trust been broken, or do you still have faith that this will happen? We still have some faith left, but most of us are really, really heartbroken. And it's been really cold that, you know, it can be seen from uh, our stand here at hunger strike right now. Nobody has eaten or drunk or, you know, and we are still standing here in this cold weather. Well, we'll continue keeping the light on this story. I know that the situation in Ukraine has really overshadowed everything else, but nonetheless, this is a crisis and a government failure as well. So I very much appreciate your time, and I wish you the best as you go through this next chapter, Zayed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. That is Zahed, who is just one of the you know, interpreters who managed to get to this country. But again, you heard his story. A lot of his family missing. He hasn't spoken to them. And this is a story playing out for thousands who are just waiting for this government uh, to come through uh, and deliver on its promises. All right, so I'll stop. Great to have you here. It's 718. So how's this? If the Liberals get their way, and they usually do, uh, they're planning to make sure that no other government can cancel or lower the carbon tax. So they plan to table some legislation that will enshrine a carbon price and any increase that comes along with it. Or they'll also make investors pay a fine if the carbon price doesn't go up as promised. Uh, Pierre Polyevra has already promised to cancel carbon taxes, and many of the other Conservative candidates are saying that they won't bring in a carbon tax. So this is clearly an attempt to tie their hands in the future. But Stephen Gibault also says they're doing this to give business investors stability moving forward, which is a nice way to spin it. But as Laurie Goldstein has laid out in his uh, latest piece, you know, we're being forced to pay a huge price for something that is based on complete fantasy because these emission cuts that the Trudeau government is demanding simply can't be done. Mr. Laurie Goldstein, who is the knower of all the numbers, <laughs> joins us now from the Toronto Sun. Good to have you, Laurie. Hi, Alex. Nice to be here. I try. I really try. But, I mean, this is something you have covered for decades. I literally glaze over because the numbers become so confusing that it's like, what? How much have we gone up, down? What do we have to get to? That I think most Canadians probably think like me, like, what do I have to pay? What's the end result? But before I go into kind of the, the pricing and that, I want to I ask you your thoughts on this legislation that they plan to table. Well, look, I mean, the, the farce of this, first of all, Parliament is supreme. Parliament can do anything it wants. A future Parliament, whoever controls the confidence of the House, whatever law they passed, uh, they can rescind it. So, so simply passing legislation uh, means nothing. They say, okay, it's going to be this amount, this amount, this amount, like you know, it's $50 per ton as of tomorrow in the provinces that have it, and it's going up to $170 per ton, blah, blah, blah. Any new government can come in and change that, and nobody can stop them. That's how democracy works. You know, the, the current government doesn't get to lock us into things forever. So the second one is more devious. 
that said, okay, we will guarantee, like we're the government now, we will guarantee investors coming in now that they will basically get a certain return on investment. Because obviously, if you're in projects that are reducing emissions, those projects become more and more valuable as the carbon price goes up. Because in other words, you save more and more money. And if they have like a, 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 a credit trading system, then obviously it's worth $170 per ton instead of $40 per ton if you don't emit a ton. Okay, but just... It, this really is simple. Just think of what that means. That means that they are not confident that the rising carbon tax is going to decrease emissions as they say it will. And there's an obvious reason for that. And again, simple numbers. When Justin Trudeau came into power with all the speeches about he was going to lower emissions, their record from 2015 to 2019 was that the emissions were, sorry, the emissions rose by 7 million tons. In drop. That's not a great number, but they, I mean, it's not a large number, but they went up 7 million tons in four years. Now, what is the government saying now? It is saying that between 2019 and 2030, it can lower emissions, or it will lower emissions through its carbon tax and other policies, a minimum of 287 million tons by 2030, or a maximum of 324 million. So having, having allowed them to rise by 7 million tons from 2015 to 2019, they're now saying from 2019 to 2030, they can lower them by 287 million tons at the least amount and 324 million tons at the most amount. So what would they have to do? Well, for, for, for Trudeau to breach the first target, the, the lower target, 287 million tons, he'd have to cut emissions equivalent to Canada's entire oil and gas sector by 2030. That's 191.4 million tons of emissions in 2019. And you'd have to basically wipe out not just that sector, not just oil and gas, but the entire building sector, which is 90.7 million tons of emissions a year. Now let's go to the top one, 324 million tons. To do that, he would have to wipe out the entire oil and gas sector, 191.4 million tons of emissions, agriculture, 72.7 million tons, and electricity, 61.1 million tons. Now, what, what Gibo said on Tuesday when he announced this, okay, well, well here, here's what we're going to do. We're, uh, in order to get the emissions to 36.4% less than 2005 levels, which is below our minimum, but it's really close, and so we got eight years to, to make it, right? <laughs> They're proposing cutting 77% of emissions in the electricity sector by 2030, 43% in what's called waste and others, which means coal production, light manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. 42% in the building sector, 40% in the oil and gas sector, 30% in the heavy industry sector, and 23% in the transport. This is all a fantasy. Remember, they said they adopted Halper's number when they got in power, 2016. We're going to lower these emissions by this amount by uh, 2020. And Trudeau and his then environment minister, Catherine McKenna, said it over and over again when they were asked, we're on track for 2020, right? Well, in this thing that they released on Tuesday, if you ignored all the, all the pretty pictures in the bump and you looked at the charts, the charts show that they, ha they haven't announced their 2020 yet, but it's in that. It's in that thing, right? They missed the 2020 target by 61 million tons. That's the entire output of the electricity sector in a year. It's just, you see, their problem is, and the problem Canadians are going to have, is that 
the effectiveness of the carbon tax in lowering emissions is already completely divorced from reality. You notice how they never say, okay, we're going to raise it this much this year, and by the end of this year, here's, here's what, what it's going to Here's how it's going to drop. They have nice little charts and this and that, but they never relate the two. They never relate the cost of the carbon tax to, all right, how's this going to happen? And, and so basically, I mean, what will come out of what are they trying to do now? They're trying to protect, protect the people they call the big bad polluters, right? Like they're basically saying, oh, yeah, we know you guys in the oil and gas sector and the cement sector and that, um, you know, we got to keep that carbon price high so that you have investment opportunities where you can save money by investing in carbon credits. And if that mounts too low, right, then, it, then they're just going to do nothing and, what, pay a fine or whatever it is. This is all premised on the fact that they know that carbon pricing has nothing to do with the amount of emissions that either go up or down. And we know that from the record. This isn't the first government that promised lower emissions. Um, this is the ninth time. 2020 is the ninth time consecutively since 1988 that liberal and conservative governments promised to lower emissions, and they blew it. They didn't meet it. The only difference now is that now we're paying for it through the, you know, the carbon price, the carbon tax, right? And on that yeah. one, remember how they've always dined out on the fact that 80% of the people in the four provinces uh, will get will be better off financially? Yeah. That Well, no. And that's still in what they presented yesterday, even though the parliamentary budget officer, the independent yeah. financial watchdog of parliament, uh, like, the auditor, like the auditor general, but he, he does parliamentary oversight, he went, no, when you actually look at all the economic damage that this is going to cause in terms of a lower GDP, in terms of lower incomes for workers, particularly in fossil fuel-intensive industries, um, uh, lower investment, I mean, <laughs> lower investment, which is what they're trying to fix by, by this ridiculous plan, he said, no, actually, you know, it's not 8 and 10 do better, it's 6 and 10 do worse. And by 2024 in Ontario, Eight of ten families will be doing worse. In other words, they will pay more in carbon taxes than they. And in Alberta, that'll happen in 2028. So yeah, it's they, all really related, Adrian. The reason for this nonsense about we have to we have to be the government that establishes these, no matter who comes, is because um, otherwise the whole house of cards collapses. Uh, because like all I'd say to them is, okay, you're going to give them a guaranteed price. What guarantees do you have in the law that they're going to make their emission targets? Yeah, well, they'll just, it's like a shell game, though. Yeah, so, I mean, people, the bottom line is, despite the fact that a nonpartisan financial watchdog laid out the reality of this, it, it, their talking points have been spun so much that people actually believe that they're still going to get money back. I mean, you see Twitter, you see people arguing about it. They're still convinced that they're doing something, oh, yeah, even though they're not. They're, they are getting go ahead. The, the checks start in July. We're going to get a double hit in July in the four provinces, and then it'll be quarterly. But the point is <laughs> that that what the financial officer of the of parliament is telling us is, yeah, you're going to get checks, but you're going to lose more, right? And exactly. the government says, oh, no, no, eight, eight out of ten of you are going to use less. Well, between, between, <laughs> between the parliamentary budget officer and Justin Trudeau's spin doctors in the PMO, I believe the parliamentary budget officer. Call me crazy. Well, okay, yeah, but, you know, if you repeat something many times, uh, eventually people will believe you, uh, said one Catherine McKenna. That's what McKenna said uh, when she was ago. environment minister. That's, um, yeah, that's, she repeats something. She's kissing a cod. You know, yeah, yeah. Just, just, keep, just keep saying it, you know, look like you mean it. And, um, but look, the, the real thing here is that this isn't, this isn't like death by an instant kaboom. This is death by a thousand cuts, 
right? right. Certainly the carbon tax isn't the only thing that's driving up. Um, uh, you know, right now we have an energy shortage because governments are trying to recover from the uh, COVID-19 recession. And guess what? Wind and, turb- wind and solar doesn't do it. They, you need oil, energy, coal, um, natural gas. And the other problem is the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, because Russia provides 40 percent of its um, uh, of Europe's natural gas, right? Uh, well, why why is Europe so vulnerable? Because, for example, in Germany, they they shut down their nuclear reactors. So and so they had wind and solar, but they went, oh, wait a minute, wind and solar, they're not, you know, you can't give, uh, they can't give electricity on demand. You have to have a backup. So what did they go to? They went to coal, right? So right. They had, they, now they have, they shut down nuclear. So they, now they, which is, doesn't emit anything. So now they have coal, which is the most intensive carbon fuel. And, and then they went, well, we still got, don't have enough with the wind and solar, but we got to get rid of coal because it looks bad for us because it's the worst one. So we'll go to natural gas and we'll buy it all from Russia. What could possibly have gone wrong? What could go wrong? Well, you know, uh, Angela Merkel uh, was praised and praised and praised. But, you know, to your I mean, to, to the point of nuclear, there is a solution that is clean, green and affordable and it is readily available. So if they actually truly wanted to have a solution, um, they would turn to this. But uh, Stephen Gable is so uh, adamantly and ideologically opposed to this that he will not look at that. And so it's very um, disingenuous where they say only carbon taxes will work when there is actually something on the table right now that we could turn to to help if they were serious about actually well, doing yeah, this. Well, yeah, there are two conventional fuels we have that we could work with right now. Um, it's uh, nuclear power, which is non-emitting. Uh, and we know we have the issue of, of yeah. you know, waste, but we know how to store that. It's, it's been stored in Ontario for years. Yeah. We have great nuclear technology. We don't have Chernobyls and, and those kinds of things. Um, and the other is natural gas because it's the lowest burning. And how do we know that works? We know because that's how the Ontario government completed the most impressive I mean, it cost us a fortune because they blew a lot of money on, on wind and solar, which were useless. Yes, but, but, but they eliminated 25% of Ontario sure. used for coal. That's why we don't have any um, smog digs anymore. And that's why our emissions um, plummeted. But because Gibo is a former Greenpeace activist, right, when he was putting out bonds so that people could, same thing, people could invest mm-hmm. in things that lower emissions, he excluded the two we have that actually work. Natural gas and nuclear power. Why did he do it? He said because they were the same as, get this, Alex, the weapons industry, the cigarette industry, and the alcohol industry. He's comparing clean sources of fuel or, or cleaner sources of fuel to weapons. That's how dumb this is. All kinds of environmentalists. James Lovelock, the creator of the Gaia theory, James Hadson, the father of the theory of, the, of global warming, um, uh, um, Patrick Moore, former founding member of Greenpeace. These are all uh, George Monbiot, probably the most accomplished environmental uh, uh, journalist in the world, all looked at the numbers over the years and came out. You can't do this without nuclear power, but not, yeah. not in Ontario. Or not in Canada, not in Canada, because oh, the PMO knows better. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's a farce. It's just a farce. Well, nonetheless, it's a farce we're going to pay a lot of money for, and we'll continue paying for it. And uh, starting again tomorrow with another increase. Uh, gotta let you go on that note. Thanks okay. so much, Lori. Very no much appreciate it. Lori Goldstein uh, joining us. You know you've been covering this a long time when you can just rifle off the numbers like he does, just uh, this and that, and I could just glaze over. I'm like, what? 
Welcome back to the show. So, you know, Canada's Dollarama is rolling out additional price points up to five bucks this year. And this is a discount retailer, which typically sells everything from kitchen essentials to, you know, party supplies, which I bought today, and you can get them under three, four bucks. But they're looking to protect their bottom line from heightened inflation. And discount stores are great until there's no longer a discount. So at what point are they the dollar store and no longer a discount store? Daniel Tish is president and CEO of Argyle Public Relations. He joins us now. Good to have you. Hi, Alex. Look, it's not like they're having a bad time. Their sales for last year were $1.22 billion. That's up from $1.10 billion in the same quarter last year. So I'm not exactly crying tears for them. But it's a sign of the times. You know, they're going to roll out these price points up to 5 bucks, um, But that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting better stuff. Yeah, no, it it certainly doesn't. It it means you know if 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 we're if we're fortunate, it means we're getting the same stuff and paying more for it. And of course, we're also seeing all sorts of other changes in the retail environment where you know what's 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 been called shelfflation, you know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know and, and other and other other kind of little tricks you know that uh, retailers have had to have had to adopt uh, where to make us think we're paying the same prices. But we're actually uh, buying smaller packages for the same price, right? So, or or even worse, we're paying more for slightly smaller packages. So, we're seeing a lot of change in the retail environment, and it's not surprising. And and of course, yeah, it is kind of fun to watch when there is an impact on a brand. And you know, you're seeing all sorts of uh, you know mm. uh, uh, jokes around it on social media. You know, dollar ish rama, dollar dollar <laughs> scamma. Five dollar ama, right? So, you know, it, it's always a risk. We're not a dollar ama. We're not a dollar yeah. anymore store. So, yeah, yeah. But that, that's like they've built their brand on this, and they're very, very successful. So, at what point does that start to stick? Well, you know, it, it's always a risk, and sometimes an advantage, of course, when you convey a really specific promise right there in your brand name. Um, you know, and I was trying to think of examples, you know, 7-Eleven is probably a good one, although they've gone the other way, right? It used to be, it's called that because it was open from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., but most of them are open 24 hours now. So, you know, so there's it's there's little risk in, that. yeah, there's little risk in improving on your brand promise, right? But I guess the way I look at it, I, I think the, the risk for Dollarama is pretty low here, right? Because a brand is more than a name. You know, it, there's a brand name, but there's a brand, there's a brand identity, a brand experience, and there's a brand promise. And really, their promise, it's 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 more about whether that promise is broken in the minds of the consumer, right? You know, so the question really is, um, does the proposition and experience continue to be strong and consistent around where they've built their brand? And I'd say it's it's on three things: it's on savings, it's on selection, it's on convenience. And I think if they continue to deliver those things, the term dollarama can still connote savings because, you know, we're still doing business in dollars, right? Yeah. Well, for now, until Bitcoin now. takes over. <laughs> but, you, but yeah, but, you know, it's interesting because I, I just happened to go there this morning because I had to get a couple of uh, birthday things for, for my little guy. Um, and I've been wondering this for a while because when you go to the dollar store, nothing actually costs a dollar. It's usually 2 $3. It's still pretty yeah. cheap. At the, at the same point, though, what goes up generally doesn't come back down. And that's, I think, what the concern yeah. is. It becomes entrenched. Yeah, it does, and 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 it's certainly a grim reminder of that, right? Um, and you know, uh, when I was growing up, uh, maybe this is the case for you too. I, I used to hear older people talk about, you know, oh, go get that at the five and dime store, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, 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 I, and I was like, huh, what's, what's a five and dime store, right? And, of course, the origin of that is, you know, everything costs a nickel or a dime, right? But, you know, um, that, that idea is pretty quaint today. And I think the same is happening now with dollar stores, right? And, and so it, it remains, you know, the good news for them is the term dollar store, it's still the name of the category, um, even though we know, of course, you know, uh, the, the in inflation steadily eats away at, uh, at our buying power there as it does everywhere else. And, you know, and, and I oh. think that's just a reality. But, but, but the other thing, of course, is, you know, brands also evolve, right? I mean, they're, they've got a very strong brand. Um, and, and as you say, they're doing very well. So I, I don't think that's going to change. But you do see change, right? You know, we used to go to Becker's and Max Milk when I was a kid growing up in Toronto, mm-hmm. and Max Milk became Max Convenience, and now it's Circle K, right? And and we already talked about Seven Eleven. So, you know, brands do evolve, and and uh, and maybe in time they'll move to something new as well. I will say the store doesn't look kind of as old and tired. I mean, it's it got a lot more products that they offer. I mean, so they've dazzled up the shelves. I mean, there's pretty much nothing you can't buy there. Well, yeah, and and I think that's been an interesting shift in you know, or I don't know if it's a shift, but it's an interesting evolution in in you know in that that brand promise I alluded to earlier, right? And, and if, I mean, if you go to their website, you know, that's what they talk. They they don't just talk about price, right? They they also talk about convenience, you know, the locations that they have, um, you know, and 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 also selection, um, and and they seem to be increasingly leaning into the idea of. Uh, we're offering national brands at prices at, at attractive prices. So that's an interesting proposition because it's different from just you know the generic generic brand at the cheapest price. You know, it's instead saying you know, well, look, it's 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 a you you'll you'll, you'll see brands you recognize there, but you know, no one has to know that you got it at a good price. And that's and that's an interesting interesting value proposition in the market. Well, as long as they're cheaper than the rest, I guess they'll be okay. Dan, I'm up against the clock. Appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Always always good to give you my two cents or, or, or $2 or whatever it's worth. Yeah, there you go, as long as it's not five. Daniel Tish with uh, Argyle Public Relations. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday starting 7 o'clock sharp. We'd love to have you. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.